Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me, as today we're going to get the chance to speak with David Clifford. Now, I was really fortunate to attend TEDx Christchurch and got a chance to chat with David before that event, and we just connected briefly over a conversation about the word curiosity, and that's a word I use a lot in this podcast, and he also thought it was a word that had a lot of potential to unlock conversations and to open doors that might otherwise remain shut. So while he was in Christchurch, we agreed to meet up and record this interview, and I'm so glad we did. And a big shout out to Kyla Colburn and Kit Hendon and Rebecca Robertson, Joanna Coxon, Gwen Hooper, Rosaria Ferguson, and, and all the other people who behind the scenes were pulling together TEDx Christchurch. It was a really great event, and I enjoyed all of the speakers. Make sure you check out the YouTube channel for TEDx Christchurch to watch them in due course. And if you enjoy this episode, then it's likely that a friend of yours or other people in your networks would enjoy it as well. Then consider checking out some of the earlier episodes as well, because there's now more than 120 in the back catalog. Seeds is a podcast about spreading good stories of people who are doing boundary-pushing things. There's also a website at theseeds.nz where you can sign up for the newsletter and check out the social media channels as well. Now let's turn to this conversation with David. So it's a real pleasure to welcome David Clifford, who's an edu agitator. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. We met like three days ago, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and to turn around um, from meeting on a Friday to recording this on a Monday, like that's about the fastest turnaround I've ever had. Is that right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> but I'm excited to have you here because you were presenting just yesterday, like 24 hours ago, yes. presenting at TEDx Christchurch, right? Yes, I was. Because Kyla Coburn and Kit Hendon were the ones, weren't they, who first contacted you? Yes. Yeah, and that's actually really cool for me because Kit Hendon is one of the people I interviewed like a year and a half ago and is one of the best interviews and one of the most listened to interviews actually all about the idea of balance and slowing down. I listened to that podcast. Did you? I did. There you go. (laughs) And it's cool. I was invited to do this TED Talk because I... Um, had done a workshop with the BOMA Education Fellows back Ah. in March. Wow. And had a really, really great time. The workshop was around laboratory design. There you go. Well, we're going to get into that, and I'm really excited by this conversation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And um, what I'm really fascinated to hear about is some of your work around education Mm -hmm. and particularly what the future might look like. Mm. And um, as well as that, though, looking at our past, like, how have we gotten to where we are? Mm. In order to ask those questions, though, what I love to do with guests is just unpack a bit of their life yes. and find out about their, where they're from mm. and their context, because I think that will then inform our discussion. So if it's okay, we'll just go right back to the beginning yes. and just tell us a little bit about where you're from. That's great. Um, so I was born in Pasadena, California. Pasadena is in uh, it's a suburb of Los Angeles. Uh, and then I say I was reborn in Oakland, California, when I went up there to go to uh, college mm-hmm. um, to so study that, jewelry. So that um, that early childhood, like, yes. do you have strong memories of growing up? Like, you know, let's say age five and six, like, what was it like for you? What was life like? <laughs> We're going right back, you can tell. <laughs> We're not like, going to jump to college. We're going to uh, go right to the beginning. Yeah. You went right to that age, so five or six 
uh, for me, that was preschool and kindergarten. And mm-hmm. that was really the beginning of a time that lasted for a good 15 years or more mm-hmm. of really questioning my intelligence and my worth. And uh, most of that comes from school. And I remember um, uh, kindergarten, Miss Jansen, who was a little tiny but um, hardcore German teacher. Right. And uh, I remember uh, Sounds coloring. like you remember her really clearly. Very huh? clearly, because <laughs> it was the beginning of, of really understanding that there is a right way and a wrong way to do school. I see. And uh, I was coloring in a zebra or a horse. It was some hoven animal. And uh, she reprimanded me for coloring outside the lines. Ah. And I thought that was harsh and a ridiculous thing to come down on a kid for. Um, And that was, again, the beginning of really being cautious um, about following the rules. And so I spent most of my my career in education really through high school um, scared of making mistakes, Mm. which is a really terrible place to be when really schools are about um, taking risks and failing and learning from from those. Mm. And was there a particular area that you enjoyed like at school like I was thinking <laughs> is it possible to categorize did you enjoy science more or oh. or other things or what yeah just describe yourself I guess yeah I was a <laughs> if you look at pictures of me you know there's the those ubiquitous class pictures and all the kids are lined up on benches or chairs or sitting crisscross applesauce mm-hmm. and uh and then there's me almost in every picture like a deer in headlights just terrified uh and i was terrified of school and people in general i was a super duper sweet kid um but i wasn't great in sports i couldn't read well my sister was an amazing reader and she just read all kinds of books and that just wasn't my jam Mm -hmm. um and i had a hard time sitting still but what i did find was my place of belonging really in, in school and in class was definitely art right? and definitely um, reading people and reading their eyeballs or mm. their energies, um, really just, just trying to fit in. So the mm. combination of the social dynamics of school um, and uh, I think about too, just um, I really liked girls a lot. Um, and I think by the time I was in first or second grade, I must have been married about um, six times. Right. Yeah. But so art and friends. Yeah. And the art, what sort of outworking did that take? Was it in sort of painting outside of the lines? Yeah, right. <laughs> or, or what what form did it take? Oh, for man. You? Like I would draw tanks or I would draw dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was an amateur race car driver. And so he was in his shop all the time. Right. And so I would build things. You know, I had knives as an early, as a young kid. And so I would carve things all the time. Anything I could do with my hands so that could be drawing um, or building things or working on my bikes. Right. Yeah. And the human side of things, like you mentioned, you know, being able to read people. Yeah. Was that was that something that you think you were sort of born with or did it? develop as as a 
in a way a defense mechanism or a need to like fit into the situation 100% defense mechanism right as I'm learning um I'm almost 48, mm-hmm. and as I'm learning as a grown man uh, what it really means to be intimate mm-hmm. with friends, with my wife, with my children, um, so much of learning how to be intimate comes from modeling from parents. Right. And um, when, I, uh, when I look back, I, I know now that my yearning mm-hmm. Uh, or my need to read people was my absolute need to belong because I've, my parents were working all of the time. Right. They're of that generation where that's, that's how you provided for family. And when you're working all the time, that also means that you're not fully paying attention to your children Mm. and your children need that attention and that love. Mm. Um, they also, um, they were great, kind people. Are my mother's still alive? My father passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also did not express a whole lot of emotion. Mm-hmm. And, and they also, they really didn't want to be married. So what do you do when you're unhappy in a marriage? Mm-hmm. You, are in, uh, uh, you have infidelity or you work. Mm, right. <laughs> and um, I think they did both. Yeah, and yeah. so um, as a way to want to belong, because all humans want to belong, I read people. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I think it's really interesting as well. Just the comment that you're making is, you know, for a child, having t- spending time with a child, you know, and feeding into them, you're valuable, you're special, you belong. That's like the biggest gift that a parent can give to their children, isn't it? Huge. Beyond the okay, let's practice our ABCs or, you know, like the, all that stuff. Yes. It's that you are, you, you belong, you are part of something. I see you. I love you. Exactly. And you belong. Mm. And really the ABCs and the math mean nothing. Mm -hmm. If, if a child does not feel that they belong to something Mm -hmm. and whether that's your family or the classroom or friendships, if they don't have that basic substrate mm-hmm. of belonging, of love, self-love ultimately, mm-hmm. um, that is gonna carry through. Even if you're a straight A student and you go to the best colleges, yeah. um, that, um, oh, how would you say it? Again, that lack of belonging, but there, it not having that belonging and then ultimately not having that sense of purpose. Yeah. Well, the word I want to use is foundation. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, what's your foundation? And, yes. and if you do come from a place, you know, if you're lucky enough that your parents do provide you with that foundation, then yeah. then the house or whatever that you build with your life, it's going to be a lot easier, isn't it? Yeah. Than, than not. Yeah. And here's the catch that, you know, my parents may have um, been fully enveloped in work. Mm -hmm. I do know that when we were together, they did see me and they did see that I had these gifts or I had these needs Mm. and I always felt that they believed in me. Right. Uh, And I think that's one of our jobs as parents and teachers is Mm. to take the time, slow down, attend 
to the in particular the, the children that are in front of us, and mm-hmm. they could be youth, young mm-hmm. adults, but to take the time to really be curious mm-hmm. and get to know that person in front of you, mm-hmm. set your own needs for affirmation, whatever aside, mm-hmm. and do what you can to to continue to ignite and allow that uh, that light or that flower that's in front of you in mm-hmm. that form of a human mm-hmm. to grow. You mm-hmm. know this as a parent of four. Mm. Oh, right? definitely. But it's a challenge, right? And <laughs> and to be to be present is is a difficult thing these days because there's so I'm sure you'll agree there's so many distractions on you know just the phone in front of us and the thing that i sometimes say on this podcast and i'll say it again because i think it's worth repeating is are you truly present with your child or with the other person that's in the room you may spend two hours in the same room and never actually have interacted and been present together because you're checking your messages and your emails and you're watching youtube videos of cats you know like it's possible to be physically together but not present. Absolutely. Mm. There's so much there. I, I think I just heard of this, this, this uh, statistic that just having your phone mm-hmm. on the table and it's turned down and on silent mode reduces people's trust mm. to be able to share and interact with you because they automatically assume that that thing it's is another going priority, to, right? Yeah, it's going to take away yeah. from you. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting too at thinking about um, being present mm. and the the tension that I've been feeling lately mm. is that we I would say myself as a as a man and as a father have been led to believe that I have to provide for my family mm. and usually what that means is going out making money finding a job that pays for insurance in the states that you have to have that you know yeah. and um and that that is the narrative, that I have to go out, bust my you-know-what mm-hmm. to make enough money to provide. And and then thinking, what actually am I really providing? Mm. Because I am giving my all to this job. Mm. And I come home and I am a fraction of the human period mm. at the most important time, which is to be the my full self. Yes. For my wife and for my daughters. Mm. Mm. It's very challenging. So, so challenging. <laughs> we could stop the podcast right now because that's enough of a challenge. No, but I love it because it is, it's not talked about enough. And the reality is that 10 years ago or you know, 15 years ago, we didn't have the same addiction to mm. the smartphone. You know, like for you and I, we're very similar ages. You know, we, we didn't grow up with saying, hey, mom, can I play on the phone? You know, it just didn't, it just didn't exist. You know, we, I still remember my grandparents had the dial phone you know you yes. pick it up and you yeah exactly so the reality is that there's these um technological changes which have happened and our social responses are still catching up in terms of what the implication actually is which is fascinating time to be alive but also quite poignant to think about our children and what it is that they're learning and are we present with them or not? So true. I, I, um, jumping way ahead, as mm-hmm. a you know, I, one of my many lives, I've been a, a shop teacher, right? Right. So teaching kids how to use a metal lathe or a table saw or blacksmithing, um, all of them very dangerous 
and could kill you. Mm. And um, so you have to walk kids through the process, and mainly about learning how to be kind mm-hmm. in a space that's very dangerous, but also having respect for oneself so you can have then respect for others. Mm-hmm. That's a whole another exciting topic. Yeah. But, you know, parents would come into these spaces and they would want to know, so what's the most dangerous tool in this space? Mm-hmm. And hands down, I would say uh, the computer mm-hmm. and the smartphone. Mm-hmm. Because we don't know. I mean, at just like that, and we, we heard it in uh, Joe Robinson's mm-hmm. TEDx talk mm-hmm. yesterday that kids are exposed to, for instance, porn without even seeking it out. It just finds them, yep. right? And we don't know at the drop of a hat um, what they're going to be exposed to on the computer in the classroom mm. and the implications of that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. So let's draw it back to your childhood. Yes. Because <laughs> this is the thing I love about the podcast, though. I, d- I never try to stop the flow because yeah. if, we, if we can talk about an interesting topic, we'll yeah. just do that. Yes. So, um, but just coming back to your own life yeah. and sort of what... What shape did that take for you then, I guess, coming through your high school years and getting to the end of high school, Mm -hmm. being someone who is focused on the arts and, you know, people, emotional intelligence was Mm -hmm. important to you. Like, what what happened next for you? What what did you decide to do? So, you know, I went to a a private kindergarten through eighth grade school Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) where, you know, I I did fine. and then I went to the good local public school. Okay. And good in the States generally means uh, white or Asian. Okay. And, uh, and, and that's, in my opinion, very questionable and very problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there I was. I went to this school mm-hmm. and uh, was miserable. And, and this sounds cliche, but then started smoking weed, mm-hmm. hanging out with the, the bad kids. Uh, some of them turned out to be the most lovely, life-saving humans in my life mm. um, and was still miserable. And those kids who saved my life then graduated. So I ended up leaving that school to go to a public arts high school. Right. And I studied visual arts, and I felt for once in school like I belonged, mm. that I was valued for what I can bring to the room. Mm-hmm. Um, it was lovely. And it was in Los Angeles County. So Los Angeles County at the time, there's 20 million people. So we got all kinds of kids coming together, bound by their passion for visual arts, dance, music, theater. Wow. And, so uh, this was your crew. <laughs> this was our this yeah. Is, this was the crew, yeah. and it absolutely changed my life to wow. be in that space where it was okay that I wasn't academically smart. Yeah. It was okay that I wasn't an athlete. There were no sports, mm-hmm. um, but we were all there jamming off of each other's creative energy. Yeah. Um, and, and how do you? How did it end up that you went there? Like, did somebody say this guy needs to go to this school or? How did it play out? <laughs> so cr- I remember it vividly. I was having sushi with my mom uh-huh. one night. Uh, we were celebrating something. Oh, wait. Uh, what, what, yeah, I don't remember what we were celebrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, well, I think I was mentioning how miserable I was at this one high school. Right. And some dude across the way at the counter, uh, the sushi counter, says, you know... 
there's a place just, there's a place for people like you. weirdos <laughs> like you and um and i then before the internet so i don't know what happened next yeah um but i got a name and <laughs> yes yeah. i applied for it got my portfolio together mm-hmm. and um again it was free but you had to present a portfolio and that uh that was it yeah i couldn't it was just the best decision wow I made. isn't it amazing when you look at life you know, because it could have, it, if you hadn't been having sushi in that particular restaurant yeah. at that particular moment when there happened to be someone who overheard and said, hey, you should check this out, you know, what, where would you be today? You know what right. I mean? Like, it's just, it's in serendipity, is it? It's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really fascinating. It was. Yeah. And, and, and then at the school, like, I was with my people, mm-hmm. and then there was this teacher, his name was uh, Joe Gatto. Um, he taught figure drawing. Hmm. And figure drawing is um, there's generally a naked person mm-hmm. in the room, which again I was sixteen, and to to feel respected as a young adult, mm-hmm. to be mature enough to handle there to be a man, naked man or a naked woman to then draw from, it was also really empowering because I have I had felt and I still feel an education. Mm-hmm that we um, do not give the respect and trust mm. uh, that future adults, a.k.a. these kids, right. um, deserve. Yeah. And this guy, Joe Gatto, saw me, and he, I felt like he saw all the kids. Yeah, right. And it actually, it, it sounds like he was present enough to see you, right? Like, that's the key thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned um, before we started recording that my daughter had done a talk and she was talking about being present and, um, you know, that that time and that input is so critical. And it sounds like that teacher was that for you. Yes. What do you think had shaped that person's life to be that way? Why why were they focused like that? Why was Joe focused that yeah, way? Yeah, why was Joe that way? Do you know? I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm super emotional thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's, what's emotional too, it's fascinating, is that um, he had the same impact mm. on my wife, hmm. and we went to completely different schools. She's five and a half years older than I am, mm-hmm. and um, she had him for a college class. Right. And she also holds him as one of the few teachers in her in her life of learning that yeah. really saw her wow i think I what a know. legacy and a testament to that person right you know to to have influenced so many because presumably you're just a small sample yeah. of the potentially thousands of thousands. people that were impacted by this person yeah and how often do we well i'm willing to say this we don't give enough respect to teachers you know the role that they play in our children's lives is yeah incredible and that person impacted you in that way impacted your wife in that way impacted thousands of others in that way yeah like what an amazing legacy to to leave yeah yeah i wish i wish i knew what Mm. what um brought him to that space but he had this a fierceness to him Mm. that was captivating Mm. and and i would say that most students did feel captive Mm. by his um, his unrelenting need or or belief in your ability to be a craftsman or craftsperson mm-hmm. in whatever it is you chose to do. And he was actually a trained jeweler. Oh, in fact, I'm wearing a ring that I made right. 20, 
seven years ago inspired by his uh, his designs right that's so cool it's fascinating i love it yeah, yeah no it reminds me i re- re- recorded an interview with someone recently and i'll get the quote wrong but you'll get the sense of it that the legacy that we leave isn't inscribed on stone it's in the people and the lives that we've touched that's beautiful yeah it's and it's that thing isn't it It yeah and i can't help but think of my grandmother who was a teacher um she was a kindergarten teacher and she used to get people coming up to her you know and and they were they were grown-ups by then you know she taught in the same place for 40 years so she used to get people in the supermarket saying, oh, Mrs. Moe, you were my kindergarten teacher when I was five or six or whatever. And, you know, that legacy was incredible that she had inputted into their lives in such a valuable way. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think how fortunate it is that all of those people got to experience mm. a great teacher like your grandmother mm. or a great teacher like Joe Gatto. Yeah. And then the flip is, I think, how many teachers there are out there yeah. that shouldn't be in front of children. Right. And just as you can see, and when I was trying to build this school, mm. Design School X, inter- did empathy interviews with countless people. Mm. And when you would, when folks would talk about a teacher that was meaningful to them, their whole posture changed, and they become they became grounded. And so, and their light emanated from their chest. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And then when they would bring up a teacher, where they felt shamed or excluded, whatever, mm-hmm. their posture would implode. Right. And and sometimes it was hard to tell who had a greater impact: mm. that teacher that brought out the light, or that teacher who shamed or caused harm in some ways. Right. And, yeah. we, and we forget as adults that we have that. Mm. And especially in this day and age where we all feel so invisible yeah. and teachers feel undermined all the time, that we adults forget that we have an immense amount of power mm. to liberate the light inside kids or to diminish or manage or oppress mm. that light which is a challenge for all of us, whether we're a teacher or not, <laughs> isn't it? Because oh my whether it's your niece, your nephew, the person, the neighbor's kid, whoever it is, like what role are we playing to either empower or disempower Absolutely. their visions and their dreams? Because, yeah, well, this, yeah, this is great. Um, and I'm just thinking, let's, let's bring it up more to what you're involved in now but just describe because is that sort of the arts and things is that what you got into immediately after high school was that an area that you were working in um so yes so high school and then i went on to art college okay where i studied uh jewelry and uh metalsmithing okay and printmaking how did you choose metalsmithing (laughs) (laughs) i first attended it's called the california college of arts and crafts in oakland and san francisco and i originally went there to study industrial design and product design and i got through the about a year and a half of the program and something didn't feel right Mm. and two things didn't feel right one is that i wasn't really making anything i was making these prototypes uh to get an idea across Mm. and the other thing is I was really just playing into the capitalist system of designing 
stuff to get people to buy stuff. Right. And it just, I didn't really have the language to articulate it, but it mm. just didn't feel right. Mm. And I was also taking this class at the time, a jewelry class. Okay. And it, jewelry is ultimately one of the oldest forms of industrial design or product mm. design. And it's about um, body adornment. Mm-hmm. And allowing, it's an opportunity to to allow people to express themselves yeah, and their yeah, identities. Creativity, yeah. And I got to make it. Mm. And it required such fine motor skills. And um, I do feel that my hands are in, infinitely more intelligent than my actual brain. And my hands actually make my brain more intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and they connect to to more parts of my body mm-hmm. than just my brain. Mm-hmm. And so when I was making, I just felt alive and, and purposeful. Yeah. Um, so that's what I studied. That's what I have my degree in. Yep. Um, and I had, again, a handful of jobs. I worked for a feminist metalsmith, mm-hmm. uh, Harriet Estelle Berman, making her work. She was awesome. Um, and I then stumbled into teaching. And uh, I, I had, it was a substitute teacher for my old jewelry teacher. Um, and I was going to teach machining mm-hmm. and jewelry. It turns out that the school really liked me. Um, I, I kind of liked the school. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked the kids. Um, but really what got me juiced to teach was that here I was in this college prep high school yeah um and a very elite private high school with this old shop program and i would have kids come up to me really questioning my intelligence like oh did you did you go to college like do you have to and thinking and they also look down at the hands as something that uh, those people do over there right sort of menial labor sort of thing yes and to me my hand saved my life and creativity saved my life through middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got really fired up because I both saw um, the potential of of a human being diminished right in front of me because they had this idea of the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the positive side. And the other part was very rageful. It's like, how <laughs> dare you think that this stuff isn't important? Yeah. And um, the school offered me a job. Mm. And, uh, but just to pick up yeah. on that point, how yeah. often does that happen? Like I see it quite often in the in the separation of the the human mind or the intelligence from the emotional sort of spiritual side. You know, like people mm. tend to like we for better or worse, our culture tends to elevate the intelligence and elevates the getting good marks and how much money did you make. and how big is your house you know like those are sort of status symbols whereas the softer skills some of the things that you were sharing about you know the emotional intelligence of being able to read a room or being able to empathize with a person yeah those aren't as valued i don't think in our culture but they haven't they haven't been yeah and they're growing yeah in importance they are for sure yeah yeah but so often it's sort of split you know like People get split into compartments, and yeah, absolutely. And I think of the of the left hemisphere skills that you just mentioned. Mm. They're very male, mm. right? In our system, although in the states, 90 percent of all teachers are women. It's still a system that was designed by men mm-hmm. for men, mm-hmm. um, and uh, privileging mm. 
uh, intellect uh, and the masculine. And uh, so therefore, the, those more intuitive... That's the emphasis, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, ignoring these other parts mm. um, that are so necessary. And all of us hold both masculine and feminine mm. within us. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet our system almost systematically segregates those those mm. uh, those genders within us mm. that all exist within us mm. yeah. yeah so you're you're teaching in that in that place and that's how you're getting into education yeah. <laughs> just take us up to, to up to speed i guess yeah. like what what happened in terms of setting up the school and things like that that we could probably have a whole podcast on that sure. right but just if you could just describe what was going on and why you were doing that yeah so again thinking about when I entered this shop program, mm-hmm. um, it had really gone to waste because the school moved from being an industrial arts school to a college prep school. Okay. But they kept the, the shops um, because they it was part of the legacy. Mm. Um, and what I felt is actually these kids, if they're going to go off and become lawyers and doctors, mm. et cetera, they still need to think creatively. Mm. And, and working with your hands does develop so much more of, yeah. of, of the human. Um, and I also noticed that I was teaching in the metal shops and it was mostly boys. Mm-hmm. And to me that was problematic. Mm. And so that was really my first design challenge for equity was how can I create, um, how can I invite girls into a space that have culturally been excluding of them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of my first challenges. So how do I change the language? How do I change my own energy and my own posture and how I, I talk with students in the hallways so they can see the tattooed mustache guy um, as an ambassador of the shops out there with a different energy than a typical man in this space. Right. Um, and so I uh, slowly but surely built with my team, this this new shop program that was really equity-driven, social justice-driven, community-driven. So you're learning these new skills, not just to benefit you and your transcripts for college, but how can you use these skills to benefit the world? Mm-hmm. And uh, along the way, I got my master's in educational leadership so I can get new skills. It just I, I was in such a renaissance of learning at the time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then someone said, because there were no shop programs at the time. This was 20 years ago when uh, they were almost all eradicated in the States. Now they're a hot thing now. Uh, somebody said, hey, David, uh, there's this guy, Jason, that you have to meet. He wants to start a boys' school, and he wants it to have a, a shop program and design program in it. Uh, would you be interested? I said, yes, I'd be interested in it. And... Um, so I jumped on the opportunity. We had conversations, and um, and that was really it. He wanted to build a school uh, for boys, middle school boys, so ages ten to thirteen, where um, boys can rediscover themselves mm-hmm. as learners, mm-hmm. and at the same time l- learn about themselves as boys and future men. And because we had a social justice and creative bent to our values, uh, we wanted to make sure that as they're going through this developmental stage within this school culture, yeah. that they were going to develop uh, that awareness of their privileges, men, mm-hmm. 
privilege as white men if if they are white mm-hmm. um, and that they have a responsibility to be creative to be ethical to be equity driven not just in middle school high school college but well beyond we were really trying to redesign uh, we were our graduates we imagined were going to be these 40 year olds healthy self-aware right men right right centered and able to contribute and grounded in who they were um and therefore also kind and generous uh to women and other men Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cool so that's what happened you did it (laughs) it it wasn't easy yeah um we started with uh 17 boys Mm -hmm. and then it grew within three years to about 90 boys and it's been hovering around 90 to 100 boys for the last uh, eight, nine years. Right. So we introduced you as an edu agitator. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about what that involves or what is the agitation part of it, um, looking at the current system, I guess, and in a way riffing off of your talk yesterday, sort mm-hmm. of tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, I guess what your dreams would be for what education could be. It's a small question. It's <laughs> so small. Um, that's a really interesting. I am. I'm in a really. Um, I feel that I am seen as a, a benevolent mm-hmm. but critical mm-hmm. disruptor and agitator mm-hmm. in education. Mm-hmm. I, I think people also would describe me as hopeful, sparkly, optimistic. Um, I try to infuse joy in the spaces that I'm working in. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that everybody is creative, mm-hmm. and so I design spaces for adults and kids to rediscover the creativity in them that has been systematically designed out of them by mm-hmm. schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, I lead all, I say all of that because I... I'm at a stage where I am not so sure that I believe in education. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely don't believe in schools as the method of um, liberating all the magic that's inside humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a fully formed thought. It's just what is in my heart right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I wonder if we are really going to change education, if we, I wonder if that's the place that we have to go, that we have to go to a place where we, as parents in particular, can say enough. Schools are prisons for our children's potential, their souls, their brains, etc. And I, I, I wonder if we were given permission to not believe in schools anymore. How many parents? I know many kids would be like, yeah, heck yeah, I'm out. Mm. Uh, But I wonder how many parents would be relieved and would pull their kids out. Mm. And together then we could reimagine what what the system could look like in nurturing Mm. the future of humanity. Mm. Right now... I feel that all too many people are keeping their kids in schools out of fear, in fear of losing power and privilege 
or fear of, uh, that's one extreme, and mm-hmm. then fear of their children going to prison or being killed. Mm. And then there's everything in between. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the reality is we each grew up with certain paradigms of thinking. And the paradigm for us is that we went to school. Yes. That's what we know. Yes. You know, and I, I often, I love this picture, you know, it's a familiar one, but the goldfish bowl and the fish inside the goldfish bowl. Yes. They don't know that they're in water, you know, that's all that they know. And, and so I hear what you're saying. I don't know, I don't know enough myself to know if I agree with you yet, but I hear what you're saying because for me, I definitely have a paradigm that, that school is the way because I went to school. Right. And of course, my child will go to school. Yes. And, and then at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, ultimately, I want them to get a job. To get a job, they're probably going to have to prove that they know stuff. To know stuff, they probably need to be taught. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, the system is definitely catering for this is the way we do it. Yes. But having said that, I was homeschooled for a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we lived in Chile in South America for yeah. a year. And I didn't speak enough Spanish to go to the local school. So I was taught at home by my mom with my sister. And um, for me, it, it worked quite well because I, I was quite curious. I, I wanted to learn. And so therefore, you could give me a history book or something and write, you're going to do that for the next half an hour. And I would kind of do it. Um, and it worked. Yeah. But I don't know if every child, you know, like, but then what you're saying is maybe that's not even needed, right? Like, I don't know. I don't either. Yeah. I mean, I, that's how you mentioned the word curiosity. Mm-hmm. And it's the first word I thought of that brought the two of us here today. It's true, like we, yeah. we met three days ago yep. talking about curiosity mm-hmm. and that our, our shared curiosity of each other is why we're sitting here right now. Yeah. And in, in my years of being in education, mm-hmm. I have discovered that all humans are curious and all humans want to learn and all humans want to belong. Mm-hmm. Um, and are we doing a good enough job in schools to really um, feed the curiosity mm. that exists in humans? Mm. And I don't think that our system was designed for human curiosity. Mm-hmm. Right? It was designed to manage humanity for very particular purposes. Mm. Mm. And we're not, we are not there anymore. Yeah. And the reality is if you go back 200, 300 years, it wasn't like the school system was the way it is today, right? It was, I think what we're saying is it was designed for a purpose and it was probably around the turn of the century, 120 something years ago, that people said, well, we need, we need factory workers. We need people to do these you know, industrial type of jobs and we need to educate them and, you know, like it, but, but if, if we'd had different objectives, then would we have the same methods to, to get there? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. And that's when, um, so after the boys school, Mm -hmm. right, I wanted to start and reimagine high school. Right. And how one of the goals is redesigning the graduate. And the current, almost every current high school is still creating the same graduate that's been around for generations. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't know this. We do know. (laughs) We are in this reality now. 
we actually have no idea what it's going to be like in 20 years or 50 years. So wouldn't we want to design graduates that can navigate ambiguity, that can be agile, that can be creative, communicative, collaborative? Mm -hmm. Uh, Our current system is not designed for that. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't we want to shift that system in order to design those skills? Mm -hmm. Because how we use time is uh, mirrors our values, Mm -hmm. right? which comes back to the word foundations, right? Yes. Like building strong foundations. We've already talked about the parents giving a sense of belonging to the child is the greatest gift you can give. Yes. But the foundation of an education, in particular, as you say, you know, with, with technology changing, the fact is this phone here is recording on that video camera, which is pretty amazing <laughs> when mm-hmm. you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we couldn't have done this, you know, two decades ago. It just did not exist. And yet, our education system is the way it is, the way it's been for quite a long time. And yet technology has changed a huge amount, even, you know, since my children were born just a couple of years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then I'm just reflecting as well. When I went to university, you know, I studied to be a lawyer. There was no class called emotional intelligence or, you know, empathy. No. But I wish there had been, because I can tell you, I don't remember very many cases, this is the honest truth, (laughs) from five years of studying at law school. Um, But the skills that I use every day relates to relationship, empathy, listening. (laughs) Those are the key skills that in, in my role are essential you yes. know what i mean but yes. there was there's definitely no course for that at university that i well the university i went to so um yeah and it takes practice mm. to learn how to listen mm-hmm. to truly listen uh to meet the needs of the people that you are trying to serve mm-hmm. not just to listen to serve your own needs or affirmation mm. it's really difficult mm. Mm. that's true yeah, I think even for me, I've been doing this podcast two years. I listened back to episode number one because I said to you, you should listen to number one. <laughs> yeah. And it was funny because listening to myself, I realized how much I've, like I would have asked different questions now probably. Uh-huh. Michelle Sharp, I need to interview you again because there was a <laughs> lot more there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, there was, so it, it, the point is, it is a skill that can be learned. Yes, absolutely. And if you want people to learn it, you have to design in the time. You have to design in, uh, so that means your schedule. Mm-hmm. You need to design it into your budget. You need to hire people who are willing to be trained in empathy or they're coming with skills in empathy mm. to then embed it into, If again, if we're using a school as a model of dissemination of learning, mm-hmm. then that is the place where it needs to be Uh, embedded not just in this one class but throughout the school culture yeah that's great well it it, obviously your thinking is shaping as as we're talking even you know like what will the future hold yeah it'll be interesting um when you come back to new zealand with your whole family on a holiday one day (laughs) (laughs) let's see what's what's happened since from now until then because i i just sense that you're you're kind of on the cusp of pulling things together and what what shape would this actually 
would actually have. And just thinking about the talk that you did yesterday mm-hmm. at TEDx Christchurch, mm-hmm. um, can you just explain for the listeners sort of what were some of the key things that you were saying there? What were some of the challenges? Um, well, it goes back to uh, this high school I tried to create of redesigning the graduate, mm-hmm. right? And if schools are, um, it's an ecosystem, and there are different pods or camps, right? Mm-hmm. A school would be a camp, or um, these are all spaces that are designing humans, right? Mm-hmm. And so the talk is really about redesigning the system in order to redesign the graduates that are coming out in order to face the complexities of our future. So right. currently, for the last hundred some odd years, mm-hmm. our system creates eye-shaped humans. Mm-hmm. So that's the lowercase i. So you have the one line with the dot on top, right? So the head is detached from the body. Mm-hmm. And our system's eyes, right, its assessment, its judgment is really placed on the left hemisphere of that dot above the eye. Mm-hmm. And if you look at those eyes, you line them all up, you put enough of them next to each other, they do start to look like that factory worker that you're talking about. Right. right? Yeah. And in between each one of those parallel lines mm-hmm. are opportunities for a system to design fear, <laughs> to design products to, to aim at you, to tell you that you're not good enough. All of them, they're designed to keep us separate. I see. Siloed and, and isolated, mm. right? Uh, and so then there's another type of human that I mentioned in the talk that uh, Tim Brown from IDEO proposes, which is the T-shaped. And T-shapes are highly sought after by universities and tech companies. Mm. And they're folks that are, you know, have a deep knowledge in something and can also work across other disciplines and with different types of people. Right. Um, what I actually, as I'm saying it, really across the disciplines is is what they were thinking, mm-hmm. um, and uh, maybe I'll get to that in a second. Um, but it's still privileging; it's top heavy, mm-hmm. right? And it's still privileging skill set, and the skill set is then privileging or is needed for this industrial model. And so what I'm proposing is that we need a new kind of human, which is the X-shaped human, Mm -hmm. which starts by reimagining how we look at the humans that are in front of us. Mm -hmm. And every human before skill set is coming with their rich story, right? Their rich strengths, and that's their foundation. So the Mm -hmm. strengths are these intrinsic strengths that we all come with. Mm-hmm. And we have different, so uh, you might be an empath, mm-hmm. right? I might be a wooer. Like these are things that come with us that, um, that are needed in working in a team, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they're a great way to level the playing field in a classroom because it's not skill-based. It's character-based. It is human-based, and it's what's needed, again, to, to have a, a really strong team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by focusing on the, the story of all of us, that's the part where time is created, heart and attention is created to notice and be seen for who we are, mm-hmm. right? For where our family comes from, your mountain, right? Your right. history, your truth. And when people feel seen and heard, mm-hmm. They then trust you. Mm-hmm. And when you trust somebody, you have more courage to be vulnerable 
And when you're encouraged to be vulnerable, you are, because learning is ultimately a vulnerable process, mm-hmm. right? And you want kids to be vulnerable to learn, because mm-hmm. if they're on hypervigilance, fear, afraid of being judged, mm-hmm. you'll never get anything out of them except answer seekers, not question seekers, mm-hmm. right? And wonder lusts. Um, so that's the, the base mm-hmm. of the X, right? And that that's your your foundation mm-hmm. to build the courage to to develop new skills, both academic, that could be hands on, but they could also be the skills of knowing oneself mm-hmm. and seeking to know other people and the world. Mm-hmm. Then, lastly, having this substrate of identity and and awareness and appreciation of one's identity with these skills, mm-hmm. we can start to find our stance, mm-hmm. right? And that stance is our, it helps us find our purpose, which is at our core. But our stance are our values that guide our decisions from how we wake up to how we greet people, how we shop, mm-hmm. how we do our work, how we design. And, um, and then if you look at the X itself, it's a much stronger structure, engineeringly speaking, mm-hmm. uh, than an I or a T. Mm-hmm. And then working all together, it becomes this incredible rhizome. Mm. Uh, which is a, an immense living organism. And eventually, this X, with its infinite possibilities, will could heal humanity. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And to achieve it, I feel um, I offered in the TEDx talk uh, this practice called uh, liberatory design, which I helped co-create. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I, th- I love the shape analogy because it... It's so often, isn't it? And this really comes back to everything that we've been talking about. Concepts are one thing, but if you can explain it with a word picture or some mm-hmm. image, all of a sudden it, it transforms. So mm-hmm. I totally get, you know, the eyes are separate and the eye, the head is removed from the body. You know, it's a, it, it makes sense. And then an X shape, you know, that there's actually connection points for different places to connect with others as well, which is a really nice visual image of what you're talking about. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting. As you're then describing it back to me, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about earlier in our conversation about being present. Mm-hmm. And I can still be in your presence, or it's thinking about being present with my daughters. Yeah. I'm really good at uh, carving out time to be with them before school and when I get home from work. Mm-hmm. But that just means I'm physically there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm emotionally there. And that's because by design, my head, which is really the workforce, <laughs> is has been separated from the lower part of my body, mm. which is my heart and my gut. Mm. So I might still be present with them, mm-hmm. but my mind is still on work because I'm a workaholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and my heart, which is telling me, David, this is not healthy. Mm-hmm. My heart no longer, by design, does not trust I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. My brain Mm -hmm. does not trust my heart and my gut because it hasn't been trained to do that. Mm. But my heart and my gut is saying, David, you have to stop working Mm -hmm. so hard because your family and yourself are suffering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I really loved yesterday, but I have to admit, and this is being vulnerable, that through the day I kept thinking, should I be at home with my family, with my kids, right? And I think it's healthy to ask that question all the time. So I didn't stay for the after party or the after after party. I went home, but I still feel like 
you know, did I make the right choice there? At least I was conscious enough to know that it was an issue, though. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I tell myself. And, um, you know, this coming weekend, we'll do some other things. Um, and I did feel like that TEDx opportunity was, you know, like it's a once a year thing. It doesn't happen all the time. But it's that being, it's that self-awareness, isn't it? The knowledge of, like, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And connecting your head and your heart. It's huge. And yeah. I, I think, too, about purpose and joy. And what I've also learned that there's nothing, well, there's a handful of things that are as important as this. Mm -hmm. And that is your, your children seeing you mm -hmm. joyous. Mm -hmm. And whether that's in your relationship with your partner mm -hmm. or uh, in relationship with your work. So you being with TEDx all weekend, mm -hmm. it fills you up. Mm -hmm. And you come home and, and that that purpose that joy is going to emanate from your body and mm. your children even if you don't utter a word mm. <laughs> about what you experience yeah they're going to feel that yeah um and it's hard to know that that that's what's happening and what you need you yeah. need to take care of yourself to take yeah. care of your children well that's the other thing isn't it and it does become a cycle of work 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 yeah. <laughs> you know you do have to take time and and refresh the wells as yeah. well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So just um, interested, the word liberatory design, is that yeah. how you phrase it? Mm -hmm. Just, what is it? <laughs> liberatory design. Again, that could be a whole podcast, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, yeah. just, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, liberatory design is um, a hack of the design thinking process mm -hmm. um, for liberation. Okay. And... And it's a huge word, and particularly huge coming out of a white man's mouth, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, we, I, m my race and my gender have been systematically oppressive for a long, long time. Um, that's another podcast, yeah. which would be really fun to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, Liberatory Design was created in a collaboration with the National Equity Project, which is headquartered in Oakland, mm -hmm. uh, and then with the K-12 lab at the Stanford D School. Okay. Um, and it really happened because um, there I was at the K-12 lab really examining where's the equity in design thinking, mm. right? Design thinking is, is really the capitalist darling, Right? It's a way to do this process in order to learn something to then create a product. Get some to outcomes. <laughs> right? Yep. To, to sell stuff. Mm. Right? And there are some really uh, oppressive habits, well-intended, but mm. some quite oppressive that are baked into the design thinking process. For one, since it's practiced primarily by white folk uh, and white men, we, as to use your metaphor of the fishbowl, mm -hmm. are quite unaware <laughs> of so many of the privileges that have been designed to mm. suit us, right? Mm. Um, and so really, the, on my end, I wanted to hack the design thinking process to develop a self-awareness in uh, myself as a white man mm -hmm. uh, of the biases that I'm bringing into every design scenario. Mm. Um, and those are informed by how I was raised, by religion, mm -hmm. my class, mm -hmm. race, etc. Um, and then lo and behold, so that was the K-12 lab. Mm -hmm. And then the National Equity Project, there they would be the e-school, so they're doing equity work. They were exploring um, how design can be embedded in the equity practice. Mm -hmm. And so we got together. 
mm-hmm. and explored it. And um, where originally I hacked the design thinking process to create notice or add notice and reflect, it was really the collaboration with the National Equity Project where we went really deep that in the notice phase, it's, it's about pausing to reflect on who you are as a designer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mention this part in the TEDx talk. It's also about pausing to notice your relationship to power mm-hmm. and your relationship to systemic oppression, mm-hmm. right? Then third is what are your intentions as a designer? Mm-hmm. Is it to make the money? Is it to be the savior? Or is it really truly to learn with folks, to share skills, to share power? Mm. Um, it's a it's a real disruption of the design process as a way to start to design for equity and ultimately liberation. Mm. Mm. And it's about, I guess, in in a way, that empathy of knowing what other people are thinking or feeling, rather than just going straight from your own background or your knowledge right yes it's equity driven empathy Mm -hmm. because if 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 i just go to listen to you Mm -hmm. i'm listening to you through my own filters right but if i take time to think about who i am Mm -hmm. and how that might impact how i'm listening uh that's that's some change Mm -hmm. also when i I work with a lot of kids, Mm -hmm. and many of them are kids of color, and they're coming from different backgrounds and classes than I. Mm -hmm. I also know as I'm getting older, and I'm wearing different clothes, um, and I have my beard and my gray hair, that I represent the man, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's really important for me to have a humility and awareness of who I am as that representation. Because my job is not just to extract stories from somebody in order to design this product. My job is ultimately also to be in relationship Mm. with people. Mm -hmm. All of us want to be in relationship with each other. um, And we have that responsibility to care for each other. So even in the empathy interview process, Mm -hmm. it is a moment to to be transformed uh, by the person that I am listening mm-hmm. with and vice versa and ultimately to earn your trust mm-hmm. yeah that's fascinating it'll be fascinating to watch how it sort of develops and grows because i can definitely see that that interconnect interconnectedness being so vital to it isn't it and it's, and listening to those other stories not just your own story it's really cool I mean, you know and design thinking is really cool don't get me wrong mm-hmm. and it it really does speak to the creative spirit that's in all of us uh, and that has, of course, taken off as well. And it's, you know, it's been around for some time. Mm. Liberatory design is also fascinating because it is speaking to the humanity in us in a very different way. And it, too, is sparking up all over the planet uh, with very little backing. It's just that's the goal is for something to be so um, irresistible mm-hmm. that it then becomes infectious. Mm. And if it feels good in you... You want to share it with others. Again, that's purpose, right? If you have a deep sense of purpose, you want others to feel that purpose. Yeah. And you'll go out of your way to help somebody find their purpose mm. and to feel magical. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And I think as well, I'm just riffing off of this just for the sake of it, but you know, it, often we would think that we inherit things from our parents. You know, we, we inherit money or a house or whatever. Um, 
phrasing it another way, um, we don't inherit from our parents. We hold things on trust for our children, which has to do with stewardship, you know, that you and I are here for a very short period of time (laughs) and that we're holding things on stewardship for the next generation, for Mm. the people to Mm. come. But if you grow up in the paradigm of I've inherited this, it's mine, it's quite a different mindset to saying I'm holding it for a temporary time. And the reality is that you and I are not going to be here forever. (laughs) And in fact, it's going to go by really quickly. And maybe someone will listen to this interview in a hundred years and I can guarantee we won't be here, which is, which is liberating in some ways, you know, but the point is what we've got now, what I hold now, what's in my bank account and the house that I've purchased. And, you know, it's not really mine. Mm -mm. It's I'm, I'm a steward for, the next generation. And then what I love about what you're talking about is having the awareness of just rather than just being in my own white middle class male mindset to be able to then hopefully look beyond myself. Um, and particularly, I'm thinking about the Maori worldview because they have something called kaitiakitanga, which means guardianship. Mm. And that resonates so well with this concept of stewardship mm, that, that, yes. that we don't, that it's not ours. It's not, that's not your toy. That's not your car. You know, this, you're holding it mm. for the next people. And I think that sort of thinking, you know, that's quite a mindset shift to saying, well, my, my, my parents died and they left me $100,000 or something and I'm going to go on a world trip. You right. know, that's quite different to I've been entrusted with something that's a gift to use for the future. It's a beautiful it? word too, yeah. entrusted. Yeah, yeah. But just, just what you're talking about just makes me reflect on those concepts as well. Yeah. To have an openness to see things beyond just the way we've always seen them. Yeah. That's good. Another great word, openness, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And to be open, you you might need curiosity, yeah, right? And to be truly open, we need that foundation mm. of that X, mm. right? To 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 feel grounded in who we are and where we come from and what we bring to every room, mm. right? That that allows more opportunities to be open to other perspectives. But if we're constantly in a state of vigilance and fear yeah. and of not being appreciated for who we are, mm. it's, it's hard to be open. It is, yeah. And it comes back to that word foundation, doesn't it? it you does. know, like that was, that was the word of the podcast, I think, because Turanga Waiwai was the word for TEDx Christchurch, which is about the place you belong, the yeah. place you're from, yeah. um, which really resonates with all of these themes as well. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I've loved our chat because we've gone in many different places. Yes. And I knew it was going to happen because <laughs> we both, I said the word curious on Friday night, yes. didn't I? And yeah. you said, oh, you used the word curious. I love that word. And I think we immediately hit it off. Yes. Because <laughs> I said to you, sometimes on the podcast, I'll say, I'm just curious. <laughs> That's right. Duh, 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 you know, yeah. and, and trying to frame that word as something that all of the listeners can also be, you know, if you're, the curiosity is what un- unlocks the door to a new understanding or, a, uh, you know, a new conversation, isn't it? It's so true. Yeah. I think about, um, again, curiosity and asking questions. Mm-hmm. And something that I've noticed over the years is that children, mm-hmm. they ask questions from a state of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And slowly through schooling, adults start to ask questions out of confirmation. Mm of being right, 
of affirming their beliefs, affirming their identity. Mm. And they're very, they have very different results. Mm. Mm. And it'd be really cool if we could maintain that, the asking of questions mm -hmm. out of curiosity mm -hmm. throughout. Mm. And being open to the children to draw outside of the lines Thank you. when they're doing the zebra or the horse, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and probably the teacher, if you'd drawn it, you know, I don't know, red and orange or something, they probably would have said, that's the wrong color for a zebra, didn't you know? <laughs> <laughs> there's, oh, this one, there's a, a great quote from um, Sir Ken Robinson's book. Um, of course, I, the one that I love is um, Out of Our Minds, and I'm not sure if this quote is from that. Mm -hmm. But um, at one point, there was a teacher that was walking around a classroom, and the teacher looks at this one kid who's drawing something feverishly on a piece of paper, and the teacher says, what are you drawing? Mm -hmm. And the, the kid says, oh, I'm drawing God. And the teacher says, well, no one knows what God really looks like. And the kid says, you will in a moment. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's the beauty of, of kids and their imagination. And their imagination. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating to talk with you. I really appreciate your time because you're here in Christchurch for a limited window, but somehow... We grabbed an hour with you, so this is awesome. And the thing that really strikes me, to be honest, is back to your high school years. Mm. And you said you went to that new school and there was that one teacher. What was his name again? Joe Gatto. Joe Gatto. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that he clearly had such a massive mm. impact on you. And my challenge for the people listening is, in whose life can you be the Joe Gatto? Mm. You know? Because I think each of us, each of us can play that role of mm. helping to helping people to be open and curious and mm. um, whether you're a teacher or not that's the point <laughs> yes so yeah i really enjoyed that and just clearly hearing how it he had impacted on you it really challenges me what am i doing with my life in terms of yeah what am i doing with my life how am i leaving a legacy with other people yeah, so thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate yeah, you coming in. Thank you for this opportunity. And clearly these podcasts uh, is one of your legacies, right? It's a really incredible teaching tool. Well, that's my hope, actually. I'm glad to, I'll just say that I think story yes. is such a great way to communicate. Mm. And if you can listen to a person's life story and really go, oh, okay, they may not agree with you, mm -hmm. but at least they know your background now to go, okay, I get where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. now I've heard his story of when he was five and he wanted, you know, yes. <laughs> like the story resonates with the impact of what you're doing, you know? And, and I think too often in Western culture in particular, I could have just said, tell me about the school that you started. Mm -hmm. and, and if we didn't know that background, then it wouldn't have had the same resonance, you know, the same impact. So, yeah. It's so true. And, uh, I mean, lastly, I will say that I feel like I have spent my whole career trying to innovate in education mm -hmm. mainly as a way to heal myself mm. from, from education mm. um, and even from my own um, childhood. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that's that that thought is not fully formed, but it's, it's, um, uh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I can see that you've got, I, what I love is how often you've laughed through the interview <laughs> because I can tell that you've got joy there. And oh, yeah. I think, 
and I love that. And you know, if my kids could be taught by someone like oh, you, you know, you. who brought joy to the classroom and encouraged them, hmm. you know, as a parent, like that's all that I ask for. <laughs> you know, I want my kids to be happy, be joyful, enjoy their learning experience. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been really, it's thank been great you. to chat. So thank you. Pleasure. You gave me goosebumps. Thank you. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. I know for me, there were many, many things that stood out, as you could tell. But really, just being in the same room with him, there was an infectious energy and enjoyment of life that hopefully came through in the audio as well. And I certainly hope that my children can be taught by teachers like that. If you enjoyed this episode, then check out some of the others in the back catalog, because there's more than 120 there. And also, there's a website at theseeds.nz. And if you enjoy this episode, then it's likely that a friend of yours or other people in your networks would enjoy it as well. So consider sharing it. Until next time. Mm